it's so hard, right? There's folks who are incredibly charming in person or charismatic that like Zoom isn't as friendly and vice versa. I also am really conscious that you know, we talk to folks who have you know kids running around in the background and there's other folks who are privileged enough to have kind of nannies at home that take care of everyone. So I kept my judgment in check. You are listening to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. A podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to The Sure Shot Entrepreneur. In this episode, my guest is Vivek Krishnamurti. He's a venture capital investor at Commerce Ventures. Previously, Vivek was an investment banking analyst at Financial Technology Partners, where he was involved in M&A and private placement transactions. He's based in the Silicon Valley, and he focuses on fintech startups. Vivek, welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur. Thanks for having me. Couldn't be more excited. In this episode, Vivek and I talk about his investments in fintech. What are certain themes that he is excited about? What he thinks are great opportunities coming up in the financial services sector. He gives specific examples of startups that he has worked with and describes what he looks for in these entrepreneurs. He gives two or three pointers to entrepreneurs to prepare ahead of time before they meet venture capital investors. Vivek, tell us about yourself, starting with where you grew up and where you went to college and how you shaped your career before you came into venture capital. I'm Bay Area, born and raised, grew up in Cupertino, and the apple has not fallen far from the tree, but grew up in a family of scientists, if you will. My dad was a theoretical physicist. My sister has a degree in kind of biology, as, as does my mom. And so always fun kind of being the dumbest person at a dinner table, but grew up wanting to rebel and, and not pursue the sciences. Went to college in LA to pursue business, where I led a number of horrific failures of small businesses that I started myself. Realized that I wanted to learn what I was doing wrong. So took a series of kind of internships and jobs in college that tried to teach me kind of how businesses work and, and the right way to do them. Eventually landed up where most college students who don't know what they're trying to do land up, which is a business degree and, a, and staring down the barrel of a you know gun that says go work for an investment bank. So I had a unique opportunity where I started that role at FT Partners, which you mentioned in 2015, but didn't start till, let's see, it was July of 2015, and I graduated in December of 2014. So actually, in the six months between the two, I worked full-time at a homeless shelter called Chrysalis. They're an amazing organization, and it actually ended up being very fortuitous. So that was about as the early innings of my journey into fintech and personal finance, but Chrysalis was a mission-oriented job placement service for folks who were homeless and on skid row. We talked about personal finance, we led classes, we helped with resumes and cover letters. And actually shortly afterwards, when I joined investment banking, despite that being a world away, it was 2015, so the early peak, if you will, of, of fintech. So my first clients were Green Sky and Prosper and a bunch of alt lenders, health payments companies in across the US and in Europe. So it was an interesting transition from personal finance for the underserved, which so in 13 and 14, didn't exist as a category. And now if you look at Chime and a few others, there's a, there's a huge category of innovation. So, you know, an interesting link that I probably didn't recognize until years later in my career. But uh, yeah, joined FT Partners in 2015, did two years there, enjoyed seeing the explosion of companies that, that cropped into the space. 
towards the end of my time there, connected with Commerce Ventures, many of whose portfolio companies were clients of ours at FT, and I've been working with Dan and Matt and the rest of the team here for, for four years. And along the way, I met you. So it's a small, small world and, and full circle. It's great to meet someone who actually grew up in the Silicon Valley, in the San Francisco Bay Area. There are very few people. Most people I meet are from elsewhere and they moved into the area. It definitely feels like around Thanksgiving, I can hear my voice echo. There's <laughs> not, not many folks left. Yeah, that's right. The restaurants are free and the streets empty out because everybody leaves to go back to their families. How did you get into venture capital? What convinced you to enter this sector and what do you really like about this? I probably was a little bit more intentioned than, than some, but certainly as lucky as the other folks who have gone down this path. My FT partners, and I really credit Steve McLaughlin, who's the founder there, they have a really, really creative approach to being an investment bank in an emerging category. His perspective was if you only banked the folks that were worth a billion dollars or more, you'd be done with your deals in two months and a year. There just wasn't that many large companies back in 2015. The way that they would staff you is you'd work on one larger deal that was several hundred million dollar capital raise or you know, a large sale. On the side, you'd work on a pseudo pro bono basis with two or three early stage companies. And these were seed companies, series A companies, series B companies that were looking for money or maybe even just giving them advice on how to structure a contract. You know, real true advisory work. And after the first year or so working on, on Green Sky, which is an alternative lender that went public just after I left, I started working with a bunch of earlier stage companies. I noticed a stark difference in the work I was doing. Later stage companies, they need an investment banker because they need a, a body that can type and structure a deal. The company's been built. They've done phenomenal work over eight to 10 years. There's not as much mystery as there is selling and covering up the holes in a business. But the questions I was getting from early stage founders were just amazing, right? There's so much more. There's that beauty of the beginner's mindset. How do you build a great business? What is attrition? What does it mean to sell yourself in this way? What types of customers should we be adding? I just felt more valuable. I felt like folks actually needed my advice. I was able to move the needle in a more material way as opposed to just presenting something that existed in the light that was better than it was. And so after a year of working with primarily early stage companies and requesting to be put on that deal, those, those types of deals, I started to realize that I was working only on clients that didn't earn our bank any money. <laughs> and so I actually had a conversation with Steve and I said, look, I mean, I love working with early stage companies. I love being in fintech. What's the next step? And he was actually the one that, that pointed me towards kind of venture investing as a way to be a helpful advisor early in life of companies. And, and actually, I credit him with pointing me towards commerce ventures as well. Ah, this is great. So you started your exposure to the startup life at the end of that journey yeah. of the startup, <laughs> like when they are getting ready for an M&A transaction or they're looking for a liquidity event. That's a good way to see how startups end up when they are nearing the end of their cycle. Good to see that you moved from there to the other end of the spectrum and you're investing in early stage companies. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? As a banker, particularly like pre-IPO or even maybe a Series D or G or whatever large letter you want to go at, there's normally some slide on a page that shows monthly, quarterly, or yearly revenues. And remember looking at these pages and somewhere, it's not actually near the beginnings, three, four, maybe five years in, you see this spike. Something clicked and something worked. And I was always frustrated that I showed up four or five years after that something worked. There's a magic to being early and a magic to being part of the reason. Even as, as a VC, on your best day, you are 5% of a reason. An entrepreneur figures out what they want to do. But there is a novelty to being part of that journey and being an integral, hopefully, part of 
the way a company discovers who they're going to be. And you can see it in the numbers. Being late to the party, eventually you get you get frustrated and you want in on the fun. So. Yeah, I have a similar type of experience. I've spent um, many years in M&A where I saw some great potential that didn't really make it. Now they're at the knocking at the door of an exit. I would hear stories from founders that the amount of sacrifice that they made and the team made and how the founders feel responsible that they need to get a good home for the technology and the business, having spent all the years to build that. So it was really heartwarming to hear those stories. These are real human conversations, not a sales pitch. When I now look at early stage companies, I can project and see where they might end up and the mistakes that they could potentially avoid. And that way they can unleash maximum potential in the company. Yeah. It's actually interesting that you mentioned that. You mentioned this human conversation. There is a particularly maybe well-deserved negative reputation that investment bankers have, but certainly the M&A process has a lot of shadiness associated with it. But what I'll say to your point, Gopi, I was wowed at the number of times I saw a founder turn down a substantial offer because they were unwilling to sell the business and lose their their employees' jobs. It happened so much more than I thought. And even I'll even add investors who, who are pushing acquirers to pay enough money so to not just the preferred shareholders get money, but common does as well. It happens so often. And I do think you know, there's a lot of frustrating moments in venture capital and startup, but it's good to know that very often, and it's not unusual to see good people making a solid ethical and moral decision. So, Yeah, you get to see their uh, real personalities. There's no... <laughs> What companies do you invest in? What stage do you like to invest? When do you want to meet these companies? Sure. I personally love meeting companies at any stage. We invest pre-seed to Series B, but I don't really believe there's any step that's too early for me to talk to a founder. That is, is always a really fun, intimate experience. Whether or not we end up investing, there's an obligation to be a part of folks' journey. So no, no stage that's too early where I'd like to think I can move the needle furthest. Part of that obviously is with the capital we manage, but also with the network we've curated, is probably around the slightly mature pre-seed. So slightly more than just a pitch deck and, and an idea, but certainly you don't need to have product market fit, fit yet. I would say the categories where we most often invest are right around when product market fit happens. And that's different in different categories, specifically in enterprise insurance and financial services. But I'd say for true fintech, for things like payments and, and banking and lending, we're familiar enough or I'm familiar enough with those categories that you can probably sniff out product market fit, maybe at the seed, pre-seed. There's certain other categories that, in my opinion, are a little scarier to invest that early. So folks that are selling software to, to carriers, for instance, I, I normally try and wait to the, to the Series A. So it's a little bit of a difference on when we invest. But you know, I'd say I love all things infrastructure across financial services and insurance. So if you're building core technology or your main thrust or main differentiator is technology and you're in those categories, I'd, I'd love to talk to you. Can you give an example of a company and share how did you meet the founders? What was the context and what did you ask them? What impressed you? Sure. I'll give a, an example of, of a company called Mercantile. Mercantile is a, we'll call it a pre-seed company. I got introduced by a good friend, Will, over at Abstract Ventures. They were huge fans of the founder. And I got introduced to Sam in December of this past year. We spent you know time over the holidays and eventually got to know him. We, we just recently invested in, I guess, early February now. The, the fascinating thing is they're, they're building a co-branded credit card for vertical SaaS providers. So imagine OpenTable being able to turn on an OpenTable card and distribute that to their end merchants. And 
this is a vision that is not necessarily brand new. Folks like Synchrony and Alliance Data have been doing it. Credit cards are not an easy space. It's certainly not an easy space to be a pre-seed founder in. What really impressed me about Sam and his co-founder, Luke, was honestly the humility, right? There's a delicate balance between willing to do a ton of research to conclude that there's an opportunity and an idea, but then being open and honest about the help that they needed. And in some ways, a reason that we got so excited was their willingness to engage and their thoughtfulness about the types of investors they brought in, specifically to fill those holes. And beyond that, I'd say that that was step one that piqued our curiosity just around the personalities and the way they were structuring the concept. The second was the thoughtfulness by which they had decided what verticals to approach first. And it wasn't really ever a question about market size because this is a $20, $30 billion market. But there's a lot of people and a lot of gravestones in this category. You could tell that they had done their homework and had very thoughtful answers around why they chose to enter one space versus or not. It's a mixture of personal interest in that category. For example, one of the spaces they're thinking about is entering dentistry and Sam's father is a dentist. And you could tell that meant something to him and that was meaningful. But the other parts are hundreds of customer conversations. And one of the advice, pieces of advice I always give to early, early stage founders is don't wait for venture capitalists to give you conviction on your space. Go out. There's a lot of things you can do before you raise your first dollar. And certainly you need to do them responsibly. But you know, Sam and, and Luke, they try to talk to basically one new SMB founder a day to understand what that founder needs and what they can do from a credit card perspective to serve them. That level of commitment is really, really exciting to see. How long does it take for you from the first meeting to the point where you form the conviction and say, yeah, this is an investment I want to make? So again, it depends on stage. For us, it's normally, <laughs> to be honest, it's normally as much time as we can get. But in the, in the, the modern, fast-paced, particularly fintech and insurtech, it's normally a function of weeks. If we're, if we're in a high conviction position, we normally do two, somewhere between two and four weeks from meeting to, to finalizing the documents. One of the things that we really like doing, and by the way, for, for founders that are listening that, that are in enterprise, I really encourage you to ask your VCs, even if you're, you're meeting them for a meeting, ask them, feel free to ask them to, to put in some work and, and help you out. But one of the things that we try to do is leverage the network of corporates that we know, whether they're banks or processors or insurance companies, and introduce the companies we're speaking to to them to get almost like a voice of the customer response. So where we can fit that in, we try to do that. So those are normally in the kind of three, four week processes. Harder to do that in a one or two process. From an entrepreneur's point of view, they want to get to the answer as quickly as possible. What are some things that uh, entrepreneurs can do to make it easy for you? Yeah, having a full understanding of your market is a critical thing to just kicking off your own company to begin with. But it's actually pretty easy to see as a venture capitalist when someone really knows their market and, and, and has the language to describe it to someone who is less familiar. A really great example of this is, a, is another company, Zach, who's the CEO of HM Bradley. They are building a neobank. They're really fascinating. And just as one example, they give you kind of tiered credit card rewards, such that, excuse me, savings rates, such that the more you save, the more you earn, and your credit card rewards are dynamic. So whatever your first category you spend is, you get money back and so on and so forth. And Zach is a bank nut. During our first conversation, it was so apparent that he knew this category better than us. And my partner, Dan, has spent 15 years investing in this space. And I've spent every single year since I was a junior in college focusing on fintech. And having someone who's that passionate about a space and knows where the graveyards are is really, really helpful. It's more important to be able to articulate that in a simple way. Like finding ways to explain your passion and enthusiasm for a space and your knowledge about it 
in a clear and concise ways. So that way that's not kind of braggadocious is, is really clear, really important. That's, that's the, probably one. The second thing that folks can do to make things easier is show that you guys have thought about the future, particularly in the earlier stage companies, not to say building a financial model or anything like that, but having concrete work product, whether it is a, a simple 12-month projection that says, hey, I don't know what my gross margins or my profit might be, but this is how I'm thinking about hiring folks. This is how about a salesperson bringing on new customers. Just having a simple thought out monthly view of the next six or 12 months actually shows a lot. It gives us a sense of the type of founder you might be and the risk you're willing to take. So it's the knowledge of the market and how nuanced you are in that combined with the practical vision for what's really going to happen in the near future. Yeah. Are there any trends in fintech that you really like? Are there themes that you think will truly transform banking and financial services? What yeah. are you excited about? So I, I couldn't be more excited about the category because I do think technology has caught up to enable a bunch of stuff that people have wanted for a really long time. The thing that gets me excited is this concept of personal finance autopilot. 10, 15 years ago, people wanted financial data. You went into you know, mint.com and they told you, this is your categories of spend. And you know, when I used it in college, it just said, hey, you, you wasted all your money. And you're not earning enough and you're spending too much. And there's been a generational shift from, hey, give me data and let me understand what's happening. To, I just want you to do it for me. So whether it's overdraft protection, whether it's automatic money movement, whether it's splitting your direct deposit across a couple of accounts, whether it's auto saving, like the digits of the world, that is really, really interesting. Americans deserve to have their financial services optimized when the technologies exist to do that. It's across categories, right? You think of stuff like your HSA, which is the most tax advantaged product that an American can have. There's millions of Americans who don't take advantage of it when it clearly should be taken advantage. Small things like auto saving and prepping for bills. Like these are, these are tools and technologies that are slowly coming to be and they'll make a material difference for a, a huge number of Americans. So that's, I'd say, one category that I'm really excited in, plaid for insurance data. Basically, the ability for an individual to take their information, valuable information, not just their policy data, but their personal information from their insurance carrier portal and port that in a digital fashion, either to a brokerage, to a third-party site like a Credit Karma. You may not even want to use it for insurance, but may want to use it for onboarding or to another carrier because you're signing up. That the portability of data and the lowering barriers to switching have made huge differences in wealth management via Quovo or Investnet or in banking via Plaid and MX. So I'm excited to see what happens in insurance. So you see huge opportunity to simplify personal finance and how we manage it. And you see an opportunity to build a, a modern infrastructure for the future of financial services. Dealing with money is a daunting problem for many people. We often postpone those conversations. We don't sit down with the financial planner. We don't really look at the numbers and it's very intimidating to analyze and we end up paying fees on fees. And sometimes we are willing to do root canals and sometimes even you know, people go through divorces and nasty things in life, but we still will not sit down and discuss money. And that's really daunting. Sometimes people wake up at the age of 55 or 60 and they realize that you know, there's not much time to really build a nest egg. For the future. The fundamental issue behind all of this is that fear of having to deal with numbers and discussing that in an open forum, and that doesn't exist easily. So if there is a way to simplify that and make it easy for people, so some of these things that you mentioned, like HSA, those kind of products are well adopted, it will definitely have an impact. 
on the infrastructure side, I, I'm also very bullish that there's a huge need for revamping the legacy infrastructure and bringing it to the new age of technology. I've actually invested in a plaid for insurance type of uh, startup trust layer. Oh, yeah. I know that they're doing well. I think that, that if I remember correctly, they're in the COI space. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's one of the, those obvious use cases and it's crazy that it happens the way that it does today. <laughs> so yeah. uh, no, that, that's super exciting. You know, really broadly, one of the things that you said that really resonates is this notion of people's adverse willingness to sit down and think about personal finances. Maybe two years ago, I spent a year thinking about collections and debt collection and how do you think about making that a more empathetic and humane part of the financial system. I had a conversation with a, a gentleman who you know, at the time was the president of Ontario Systems. They're one of the largest collections infrastructure, whether it's telephone or call routing technologies in the United States. And he said something that really stuck with me. And he says, certainly in the United States, personal finances are personal. There's a reason that debt collectors call you and you hear another human on the phone. It's to intimidate you. It's to make you feel bad, uh, which, of course, is terrible. But it points to something broader, which is, I think, personal finance, along with religion and politics, sit in this untouchable category. And you're totally right. Historically, you probably could get away with that, whether it's because you worked at a company that provided a pension or there wasn't you know, material wage deflation, but it's just not happening anymore. We've seen all the stats about liquid poverty rates of 40% when it comes to a $600 fee and things like that. And I suspect if you look at this past year, we call it 2020, the X $1,000 stimulus has you know put individuals' deposit balances higher than ever. It's a, it's a confusing time we live in where during a pandemic, people are carrying deposit balances higher than they did pre-pandemic. And so we have unknowable, untouchable issue around personal finance, a willingness to address it, and then the unwillingness to address it limits the number of tools that folks can use to make their lives easier. And the more we demystify it, the easier life becomes for everyone. Now, over the past year or so, a lot of things have changed because of the pandemic and work from home has become more prevalent. How has your work changed and what are some things that you would advise entrepreneurs to do as a result of all these changes? You know, it's interesting. The way my work has changed is probably the same way I, I advise folks to operate because I can't meet founders in person. I'm much more willing to engage well in advance of a round. I find that my comfort with folks having talked to them for where maybe historically I'd talk to someone for a month or two before they raise, I've actually really enjoyed getting to know folks six months, seven months before they raise. That way, when it comes to the burden of, oh, I haven't met you before, or this is a, how can I commit after two or three Zooms, that really isn't there. And getting to know founders as people and seeing that journey and seeing their momentum progress over a series of Zoom calls instead of two or three has been, has been really exciting. The flip side is it, it has maybe narrowed down the number of companies, right? Despite the fact that I can probably do more Zoom calls in a day than I could meetings, because I'm spending more time getting to know founders, because it's important to do that, it's harder to do that over Zoom. I actually ended up narrowing down the pipeline, if you will, on a smaller number of opportunities I'm really excited about. I suspect that's that's often true with a number of other folks. So I, I really encourage people to, in the context of, of venture capital fundraising, reach out to folks in advance of a round, get to know them, keep them updated, and, and do it in, in, in addition to just that quarterly email. Take the time to get to know them and have them get to know you. That way, when you do need capital, it isn't nearly as transactional. So much has changed for me as well, and everything's on Zoom. What do you look for on Zoom, and how does it help you form the relationship and the conviction about the company? 
it's so hard, right? There's a, there's folks who are incredibly charming in person or charismatic <laughs> that Zoom isn't as friendly and vice versa. I also am really conscious that, you know, we talk to folks who have, you know, kids running around the back, background and there's other folks who are privileged enough to have kind of nannies at home that take care of everyone. So it's kept my judgment in check in a way that is good. So that there's a, there's a lot of pressure to come off a certain way. But what we've seen and what's seemed to work over Zoom is weird and tactical. There, there's some founders that the second they turn on their, their, their webcam, they pop open the deck and they screen share. And now their face is a tiny little thing in, in the top right corner of my screen. And even though it, it sounds so silly, I've really enjoyed being able to have a several minute conversation before it turns in right to a presentation, right? Where you get to know this other person. Again, even if it's two, three minutes, I'm not, and I'm not even suggesting small talk, just having the conversation and introducing yourself before you immediately pop up the slides, which is something that wouldn't, would be a, a non-factor in person, having the slides up, solve that conversation. But now you, you almost really obfuscate who you are. Uh, yeah. And that doing that can, can be a little bit of a detriment. My theory is that shorter people have an advantage now. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, so you know, I've been waiting 27 years. <laughs> no, kidding aside, the, the natural charisma of people that usually dominates in a meeting room, that is no longer a strength. A substance matters more. So people who have the substance and are able to get to the point and tell a story convincingly is very powerful versus just the aura of the person and the charisma of the person leading the conversation. That is no longer valuable on Zoom. So I'm actually enjoying some of the positive things as a result of this, but I certainly do miss meeting people in person. Are there pet peeves, some things that you don't like? <laughs> I have a, a wide number of venture pet peeves that I try to keep in check for myself, but certainly I would say there, there's so much, right? One, there's a fine line as a venture capitalist between kind of name name dropping other funds and your LPs and friends that you may have that are relevant to the conversation in order to show that the value you can add. And there's a point where it tips into arrogance. And that that is something that's always bothered me <laughs> about the way folks in our profession operate. And there is that level of Intentional or unnecessary, intentional or unintentional intimidation that comes off as a fact of that. And particularly founders, specifically from, from different backgrounds that, that aren't you know, in a position where they have, you know, all those resources, you know, I've heard firsthand how that makes it, them feel. And it, it is something that I try to avoid and, and try to be mindful of. I'd say from a founder's perspective, and, and I'd say this is true with venture capital as well. There is nothing more obvious and more unappealing than arrogance. It's important when you go to a venture capital fund. And you're pitching. Um, it's important to be proud of what you've accomplished, and certainly proud of your past careers. It's important for you to explain why you're the right person to do it. But pretending like the task ahead of you is easy is is not going to get you anywhere. You know, mostly because you know, certainly as a VC, we, we have the purview over so many portfolio companies. We, we know what the success rates are. We know that certain industries are not easy. We we know that there's no such thing as not having competition. The humility that you can display around that can go a really long way. It certainly goes a long way in commerce ventures. You've been in venture for a few years now. And mm -hmm. We've talked about how you look for opportunities, what how entrepreneurs appeal to you, and uh, some pet peeves and things that you don't like. How has your experience been, and what is different for you compared to when you started a few years ago? When you when you start in venture, it's embarrassing how little. So hopefully that has changed some, somewhat over time. But so there's there's a couple things that I've noticed. One 
I actually think the caliber of entrepreneurs has gone up. Not that they weren't great when I started, but fintech as a category has gone from people who left incumbent financial services to try this fintech thing to PMs at Chime and Borrow and Affirm and, and all these other places leaving to start kind of great next generation tech. So on the one hand, I find that the caliber of folks that I'm speaking to dwarf my intellect by so much. It's, it's fun going to work every day uh, in a way that and I really do feel like I learn from almost every pitch I hear these days. That's honestly really, really exciting. In the fintech sector, especially uh, some amazing entrepreneurs are coming into this space. In the early days, there were people who were dabbling, trying a little bit, uh, but some of the best entrepreneurs didn't really touch fintech that much. But now, more than 50% of the transactions that I see that uh, announcements of funding, more than 50% are fintech-related companies. Yeah, and it's, again, the people who are, who are dabbling are just so intelligent now, right? And, 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 and when I say intelligent, I don't mean IQ points. I mean intelligent to fintech, right? They're, they're people who spend their entire careers now in neobanks which is like a crazy thing to say, whereas five years ago, the world mocked them. So that, that's, yeah. that's super exciting. That's definitely changed. So I want to switch to the last segment of this discussion and ask you about community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? And why? Yeah, I've been involved with since now 2012 or 13, an organization called MoneyThink. Uh, it's focused on providing financial education, personal financial education to folks in largely disadvantaged school districts. You know, I started doing this in, in South Central LA when I went to USC and have you know had the fortune of, of in the past year or two getting back involved with the, the San Francisco chapter. And there's an in-class curriculum, which is a fully fleshed out curriculum where college students and you know, postgraduates go into classrooms and talk through everything from how to think about APR rates and payday lending and other basic personal financial tools. And now the organization, and certainly a sign of the times because of COVID, we're actually putting an effort to build almost a financial guidance app for navigating the college application process. So multi-pronged approach across a couple of different things, but touches on one of the areas that I'm probably most passionate about personally. I hope you meet some entrepreneurs super, super early in their career while they're <laughs> still in high school. It happens. Like I, again, I, I continue to be amazed at like both younger generations and newer entrepreneurs that we're living in a Certainly a crazy time with valuations, but some a type of golden era, certainly in, in fintech. So it would not surprise me if the next amazing entrepreneur I met was 18. <laughs> it could certainly happen. Yeah, but this is great to see that uh, you're bringing that fintech flavor and having an impact on people's lives by educating them about money very early in their life. So it's going to have a huge impact on them and the people around them. Thank you very much for doing that and being a part of the community on an, in an active way. Well, this has been great. I've really enjoyed the conversation. We've touched on many interesting topics. I look forward to sharing your nuggets of wisdom with the world. Thanks, Kobe. Great being here. Thank you for listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.